This is a Rooster Teeth production. December 27th, 1991. Scandinavian Airlines Flight 751 McDonnell Douglas MD-81 is taken off from Stockholm, Sweden on its way to Copenhagen, Denmark. Seconds after takeoff, something is wrong. The right engine has begun surging and loses power, followed quickly by the left engine. The plane has only reached an altitude of about 3,300 feet and is now without any engine power. The pilots struggle to try and restart the engines and return to the airport, but are unsuccessful with both tasks. The plane slams into a field less than 10 miles from the airport. What caused this flight to go wrong so quickly? And what is the fate of all 129 people on board? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Sorry, I, I wanted to add a dramatic bum bum bum. Oh, to good. The end of- <laughs> you got it. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. We're back with another episode. How you doing, Chris? I'm doing good. Let's do this. I'm ready to hear what happened to this plane. We've been on a, a streak lately of planes that have lost power to both engines. Yeah. We had several episodes in the past few that have uh, that have been similar. They've all they've they've had this problem. This one is uh as always they're all a little different. This one's a little different than some of the other ones we talked about. Um this is this is another one that we uh, that's a frequent uh listener request. People who listen mm. to the podcast uh, write in asking us to cover this one. And they do so via on social media, uh, Twitter and Instagram at @blackboxdownpod. You can find uh, images and send us messages there and uh and we'll, we'll we'll do our best to to interact with people on that platform. So podcasting's very one direction. So we gotta we gotta use the social media for uh, for two way communication. Yeah. So um, Scandinavian Airlines flight seven five one, like I said, it was a passenger flight from Stockholm, Sweden to Warsaw, Poland, but it had a stopover in Copenhagen, Denmark, and it was December twenty seventh, nineteen ninety one. The plane was crewed by Captain Stefan Rasmussen, who was forty four years old and had eight thousand hours of flight time. And first officer Ulf Sedermark, who was 34 years old with 3,000 hours of flight time. If I remember right, I believe Stefan Rasmussen was actually Danish. Uh, he just happened to be flying for Scandinavian Airlines. And I think uh, Ulf Sedermark was uh, actually Swedish. I just noticed uh, this and the last episode both dealt with uh, plane crashes at Christmas time. Oh, yeah. Which is, you know, thematically good because it's Christmas time in real life. But I do wonder. What time of year has the most plane crashes? And if it is around the holidays? That's an interesting question. Um, I'm not prepared for this question. I didn't know you were going to ask this. (laughs) I didn't know I was either. (laughs) I mean, I'm going to guess that I I feel bad about speculating, (laughs) but I would almost guess it's going to be different in different parts of the world, depending on um, weather conditions. Yeah. Yeah. And and, on when uh, conditions are less than ideal for flying. So uh, it's, it's a good question, though. I'm, I'm, I'm curious. Now. I'm going to look it up after we're done with this episode. Yeah. So we'll, we'll give an update on the next episode <laughs> or on social media. <laughs> Let me make a quick note of that. OK, so this plane was a McDonnell Douglas MD-81 that had only been in service for nine months before this incident. It had 1,608 hours and 1,272 cycles. So I want to give a quick note about this plane, the McDonnell Douglas MD-81. It is uh, essentially the successor to the DC-9, they're pretty much the same plane. And, you know, you, when you think of a plane, you typically think of engines under the wings. The DC-9, MD-81, they're planes that have their engines mounted at the rear of the plane. I'm sure you've seen these planes before. Uh, American Airlines used to fly this plane quite a bit. If you've ever been on a plane where you walk in on an American Airlines flight and it's two seats on the right and three seats on the left, that's usually the configuration they do with the McDonnell Douglas. 
Most planes have their engines on the wings. Like under the wings. Under the wings, yeah. Yeah. This particular plane, though, is it's at the rear uh, by the tail, like under the um, horizontal stabilizer. Gotcha. On this particular flight, there were 123 passengers and six crew members on board, which includes the pilots. So the night before this flight, the plane landed at Stockholm at about 10 p.m. And like I said, it was winter, it was December, so it's cold. And on top of that, the air temperature the plane experienced during the flight was between negative 53 and negative 62 degrees Celsius, which is negative 63 to negative 80 Fahrenheit. So that's while it was in the air, you know, obviously at higher altitude, it's really cold. The plane was parked at gate two of the international terminal where a flight technician carried out an inspection on the plane. And during this inspection, he had found that slush had built up on the landing gear and he cleaned it off. And while he was leaving the plane, he had found that ice had formed on the upper surface of the wings. That can't be unusual, though. Yeah, it's cold. Yeah, ice on a plane in Sweden. Right, in December, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, he just notes it, and, you know, cleans off some of the slush on the gear, like I said. And the next morning at around 7.30, another mechanic found some frost had built up on the underside of the wings as well. The new mechanic then decided to check for ice on top of the left wing using a ladder. So, basically, he puts a ladder up in front of the wing, and he, like, starts reaching his arm out uh, as far as he can on the wing. And he felt the forward part of the wing with his hand, but he didn't find any ice. But he just found some slush on the wing. Mm. He then checked the air inlet of the left engine, but didn't find anything unusual. At 8.30 that morning, the aircraft was fueled up and was ready for de-icing. And the air temperature at this time was 0 degrees Celsius, which is 32 Fahrenheit, which I'm sure you know is the freezing point of water. The mechanic consulted with Captain Rasmussen about what he found and ordered a de-icing of the underside of the wings due to that frost that he had found. The upper wings were de-iced once, but the mechanic ordered a second round just to make sure the wings would be free of slush. Yeah, it's prudent. Right, just want to make sure, you know, he, they know, like you said, it's not unusual. They found some ice. It's yeah. cold. It's freezing. Going to put some de-icing on it just to be safe. This isn't the first episode we've covered with icy sludge. So that is correct. The last time we talked about this was at British Airways 38, but that was the icy sludge was in the fuel at that time. Yeah, in the fuel. But different. I'm still I when you t when you say icy sludge, I'm like, uh-oh. Uh, you got to be careful with that. So the de-icing fluid that they used at, in this instance is referred to as type 1, which is a low uh -huh. viscosity and only provides short-term protection because it quickly flows off of the surfaces. Uh, and it's applied at about a temperature of 85 degrees Celsius, which is 185 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's really hot, but it flows off of surfaces quickly. In their mind, they just need to melt a little bit of ice, so it should be sufficient. After the de-icing was complete, the mechanic did not check for any clear ice since he didn't find any before. So, you know, they sprayed it twice and they figured that's fine. During the final startup procedure, the captain asked if the wings were good and clean, to which the mechanic answered, Yes, there was a lot of ice and snow. Now it's fine. It's perfect now. Little side note I wanted to insert here. Uh, there's a peculiarity about Captain Rasmussen that I feel compelled to talk about for a second here. Okay. Captain Rasmussen liked leaving the cockpit door open when he was flying. Okay. I know that's like unusual to think about nowadays, but he always insisted on leaving the cockpit door open because he felt he wanted the passengers to see that there were humans flying the plane. Like he felt like it provided more of a connection uh, huh. between the crew and the passengers. Is that like pooping with the door open? <laughs> it's like... No, not quite. I wouldn't say so. Sorry, that's a dumb question, but I was like... He's just trying to humanize the process, right? Yeah, I mean, like, well, you do that. With, <laughs> I do that when I go to the bathroom. Like, well, your dog poops in front of you, and that doesn't humanize <laughs> him, does it? Sorry. Go on. I just, I just thought that was, that was like, aviation's changed so much. You would never see that now. The, you yeah. know, the captain, he was like, that door's got to stay open. I want people to see us up here. Yeah, okay. So as the plane taxied to runway 8, the engine de-icing systems were on for both engines, and there was no indication of a malfunction in the systems. 
The crew lined up on runway 8 and started the takeoff roll at 8.47 a.m. and they quickly entered the clouds. Three passengers reported that they saw ice coming off of the upper side of the wings as they took off and the captain heard an abnormal noise that he could not identify. The cockpit voice recorder picked up this noise and it's described as a low hum. About 25 seconds Hmm. after takeoff, the crew experienced bangs, vibrations, and jerks to the plane, and the jerks were described as heavy braking. Oh. Yeah, and the crew quickly realized that the right engine had malfunctioned. They reduced the right engine throttle in response. Uh, We talked about this, actually, um, in the Southern Airways flight. So at this point, they're speculating that the engine is surging. So in order to clear it, they're pulling back their throttle to try to help let the surge clear. Surging, remind me again. So surging is basically incomplete combustion. So the way a jet engine works is, you know, you've seen, like when you look in from the front, you see that fan blade spinning, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to give a very general overview because I'm not a jet engine mechanic. So this is my understanding. So there's several stages of those uh, fan turbines in that engine. And they serve to funnel in large amounts of air and compress it down. Then it's pushed to the back of the engine where fuel ignites and it creates that thrust that pushes the engine forward. Okay. When there's insufficient air coming in or when that airflow is disturbed, the fuel is still being sprayed into the engine. So it's, it's like backfiring. So gotcha. it's it, instead of being pushed all out the back the way it's supposed to, it starts surging and spraying flames out of the front of the engine. It's incomplete combustion, which is why they throttle back to reduce the fuel in the plane, let the surge clear, and then you can ideally you can throttle back up. Okay. Captain Rasmussen reduces the right engine throttle because of this, like I said, trying to clear a surge. But the performance actually started increasing in that engine, uh, Mm. which is, you know, not what's supposed to happen. About 40 seconds after the right engine surged, the left engine did as well, but the pilots didn't realize it because they were kind of focused on the right engine at this point. The plane had climbed to an altitude of 2,616 feet, and the pilots tried to turn on the autopilot, but it wouldn't activate, and an autopilot warning continued for the rest of the flight. At this point, both engines then failed only 78 seconds after takeoff. The aircraft's indicated airspeed at engine failure was 196 knots, which is 225 miles an hour or 363 kilometers an hour. And the aircraft reached its greatest indicated altitude of 3,318 feet. So at that speed and at altitude, how long do they have if both engines have failed before that they could kind of float and drift slowly to the ground. Float's an interesting way to put it. A glide. (laughs) (laughs) So if you remember when we talked uh, about one of our early episodes, the Gimli Glider, the pilot of that plane was uh, an avid um, glider pilot. Mm -hmm. And he tried to figure out, they call this a glide ratio. And that's the amount of distance a plane can go forward compared to the amount of altitude that it loses. So that's what you're asking for, essentially, is how far can they go considering that they only have 3,318 feet of altitude? Yeah. So normally airplane manufacturers don't list this as a specification for a plane because they don't intend for the plane to ever be flown this Uh way. Um, So I think a lot of times you end up having to estimate this because uh, these stats don't exist. And if I remember right, a a Boeing 747, for example, and a Boeing 747 is much bigger than an MD-81. A Boeing 747 has a glide ratio of about 15 to 1. So with a glide ratio of 15 to 1, a 747 can go forward 1,500 feet for every 100 feet it loses in altitude. Okay, so that seems like a decent amount. So if we apply that same 15 to 1 glide ratio here, that means that they can glide for about... 50,000 feet, which is just under 10 miles. Okay. That's assuming everything's perfect. That's assuming they have the same glide ratio, of which I don't know that they have. That's assuming that everything is ideal. Okay. 
I'm just thinking because I wonder how, how much time they have to figure out where to land at this point. Let, let, let's go with that. Let's say there's a 10-mile circle, essentially. Okay. And that 10 miles, I mean, this glide ratio also assumes going straight. If you start banking, you're going to end up losing altitude as well uh, yeah. a lot more quickly. So it's really, that's like best case scenario is 10 miles. It's, it's realistically not going to be that far. So soon after the engines failed, both of the electronic flight instrument system screens in front of the captain died, and he made no attempt to recover these screens. And for the rest of the flight, he relied on smaller backup instruments. Again, engines are out. Your electrical power goes out. You end up losing some stuff. Yeah. The first officer then realized there were warning indications from the engine instruments and that the outlet temperatures were over 800 degrees Celsius, which is 1,472 degrees Fahrenheit. So engines are running hot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> A few moments later, the left engine fire warning went off. First officer Cedarmark activated the fire extinguishing system for the engine. And this is kind of a big deal because once they pull the fire extinguisher, there's no way they can restart that engine. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Right. So once you deploy a fire extinguisher, that engine is off. Like there's no way to go through the restart procedure on it. So by deploying the fire extinguisher on the left engine, they now know that they can only potentially, best case scenario, restart the right engine. Gray smoke started seeping into the forward cabin, but the fire warning ceased after 26 seconds. A flight attendant who was sitting in the rear of the cabin was informed by uh, a, there was another captain who was traveling privately uh, who told uh, her that the right engine was surging. And she then informed the pilots about what she was told. So basically, they have some confirmation now. The, this pilot who's traveling as a passenger can see that the engine's surging from his seat. Okay, well, that's good. And it turns out there was also another Scandinavian Airlines captain who was in uniform sitting near the front who realized that there were problems going on. So since the cockpit door was open, he walked into the cockpit and offered his <laughs> assistance uh, about two minutes after takeoff. First Officer Cedarmark gave him the emergency checklist and the captain instructed him to start the auxiliary power unit. Uh, his voice was heard on the cockpit voice recorder, urging the captain to look straight ahead several times. So basically, he's uh, taking over some of the checklists. That way, the captain can focus on finding a spot to put the plane down. That's good. Teamwork. Yeah. And uh, just to explain, the auxiliary power unit is uh, it's, uh, it's basically like an extra engine in the plane that doesn't provide any thrust. It can provide electrical power, though. So uh, he's going through the checklist to start the auxiliary power unit so that ideally they can get some of their electrical systems back. What's the co-pilot doing now? Uh, at this point... He's, uh, he's taking a break. No, um, <laughs> I think at this point, uh, the first officer uh, is, is taking care of other tasks. Uh, it doesn't say explicitly, but I bet he was probably going through the engine restart for the, the remaining engine. engine. Right. Yeah. Uh, so this new captain who was traveling was going through the APU uh, checklist and he was telling the captain to look straight ahead. So ideally, the captain is then trying to just fly the plane and find a place to put it down. And I assume the first officer is trying to restart the, uh, the engine, the right engine. So when the engines lost all thrust, the crew began preparing for an emergency landing. Captain Rasmussen began a gentle left turn onto a northerly heading. First Officer Cedarmark contacted air traffic control and informed them of the situation and asked to return to Stockholm. The controller ordered a right turn so the aircraft could be brought back to land on runway one. However, the captain continued to fly north and then started notifying, prepare for on-ground emergency. The flight attendants made an announcement over the PA system in accordance with this notification. And when the plane was at an altitude of about 1,377 feet, the assisting captain started to gradually extend the flaps. So they're not trying to go back to the air. They're just going to land on the ground somewhere. They don't think they can make it back. Yeah, I think air traffic control gave them vectors to try to get back to the airport, but I think they realized that they're not going to make it. There's, there's, okay. it's, it's too far. Yeah. 
So the plane managed to dip below the clouds at about 900 feet, and the captain saw a large field to his right, but judged that he couldn't make it. He instead opted for a field that was a little more in front of them and turned the plane to a heading of 25 degrees to avoid houses. 17 seconds before impact, the first officer asked if the gear should be down, to which the assisting captain said yes. Eight seconds later, the first officer called air traffic control and said, Stockholm SK-751, we are crashing into the ground now. And seven seconds later, the cockpit voice recorder picked up the sound of the plane colliding with trees. Oh. According to the flight recorders, the landing gear was extended and locked at the same time as the aircraft first hit the trees. Whoa. A majority of the right wing was torn off and the aircraft began to bank right. Four minutes and seven seconds after takeoff, the aircraft hit the ground tail first at a right bank of 40 degrees. After impact, the aircraft slid for 360 feet along the ground before coming to a stop. The aircraft broke apart into three pieces on the ground and there was no fire. All 129 people on board survived. Whoa, yay. Yeah, it's a good one. And everyone except for four were able to make it out of the aircraft on their own. Total, there were eight serious injuries and 84 minor injuries. And it's actually crazy to look at. Uh, you know, we'll post some of these photos on social media, but you, you'll see it's just a plane broken into three pieces in a field. Huh. It's crazy to think that there were only eight serious injuries and uh, just about everybody was able to make it out of the aircraft on their own. Yeah, I mean, that's great. I mean, this sounds like a ideal crash landing, just about. It's ideal. Uh, yeah, I mean. At least for the passengers. I don't know about the plane, but. <laughs> but then you got you to gotta start wondering, why did this happen, right? Yeah. So, you know, the investigation board's going to show up and they're going to find out why did this happen? Was there a problem with the plane? Was there something else going on? Was it maybe the crew's fault? You know, they have a lot to dig through in order to figure out why did this pretty new plane crash so close to the airport right after takeoff. The investigation was done by the Swedish Accident Investigation Board, and they started to look into the possibility of ice causing the accident. Like we mentioned, it was cold, things were frozen, they're going to look into that. And in their investigation, they found nothing that would indicate the aircraft's engines had any technical fault before the plane took off. The investigation board notes that modern turbofan engines are sensitive to damage of any fan blades, especially when the damage is done to the fan blade's outer tips. And we've talked about this in a couple of episodes in the past. When the damage happens to the fan blades, they can stall when at high engine power. And the data from the flight showed that about three seconds after takeoff, the fan blades did stall in at least the right engine. Uh, and when looking at the fan blades, they found damage on the leading edges of the blades. The damage that was left behind was soft indentations without gashes or scratches. And this type of damage is caused when ice or birds or something similar is ingested by the engines. The damage caused uh, the engines to surge and eventually fail. When the left engine failed, a hole was pierced in the fan ducts. Pieces struck the main fuel pipe and caused a fissure in a well seam on the fuel pipe, and fuel sprayed out at high pressure and ignited in the engine, but the fire extinguishing system closed off that fuel supply and put out the fire. So that's why they got that fire indication. There was a fire in the left engine. So they made the right call by turning that off. Right, yeah. Fuel was spraying out and it ignited, so yeah, they needed to do that. But still, it's a scary decision to make in the moment. You know, all this happened seconds after takeoff. In their report, the investigation board notes that it is well known that clear ice can form on the upper surfaces of wings under conditions of high atmospheric humidity or rain when combined with greatly chilled wings. So remember, I mentioned uh, the plane had flown the night before, right? And during that flight, after the plane had landed, its fuel tanks were about 60% full of fuel when it was parked at the gate. And this volume of fuel was enough to chill the upper surfaces of the wings. This combined with the weather conditions made clear ice form on the wings. So... The fuel being in it just made it colder because it's just the fuel can get colder than metal or what? 
when they had flown the night before, remember I mentioned it was very cold at cruising altitude. Mm-hmm. And just imagine having, you know, like two cups in your freezer. One of them's empty mm-hmm. and one of them's full of water. And you take them out of the freezer and you put them on your counter. If you come back and check on them later, the one that's empty is going to warm up a lot faster than the one that has liquid in it because the yeah. liquid almost acts like an insulation. So the fuel got really cold up in the air and then it continued to be cold while it sat on the ground with, you know, gotcha. while the plane was off parked overnight. So the volume of fuel was enough to chill the upper surfaces of the wings. This combined with the weather conditions made clear ice form on the wings. And experts have speculated that there may have been as much as 10 inches of clear ice on that wing that got covered by sludge and snow overnight. Damn. So the technician who inspected the plane that night noticed there was clear ice on the wings and the passengers saw ice coming off the wings during takeoff. And with all this in mind, it was clear to the board that clear ice loosened from the wings during takeoff and was ingested by the engines. Just like fell off and... Right, exactly. Got sucked into the engine and um, damaged the fan blades, which led to the surge, which led to the engines failing. Got a very different kind of sponsor for this episode. It's the Jordan Harbinger Show, which is a podcast you really should be listening to. And I know every day uh, somebody tells you, you just have to listen to some podcast. You nod, you say, sure. Then you never listen to it. Don't let that happen here. Uh, Jordan Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. Each episode is a conversation with a different fascinating guest. And when I say there's something for everyone here, I really mean it. In one episode, Jordan talks to a hostage negotiator from the FBI who offers techniques on how to get people to like and trust you, which sounds both useful and disturbing at the same time. Another episode tells the story of a cinematographer who discovered a lost city in the jungle and made one of the most important archaeological finds of the century. Uh, Here recently, he just had an episode uh, that he had Russell Brand on, the comedian. You may be familiar with his work. Uh, Another one, he had an episode talking about how to deal with sextortion scams with people who try to uh, trick you and extort you on the internet. Very interesting. Uh, Jordan's always focused on pulling useful practical insights out of his brilliant guests, and we're not talking about pop psychology or wishy-washy self-help stuff here. The episodes are loaded with bits of wisdom you can use to legitimately change your mind and improve your life right away. And if that's not worth checking out, I'm not sure what is. So we really enjoy the show. We think you will as well. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? Uh, I know we probably have a lot of them we could talk about from 2020 here. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, and you can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. There's a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. Uh, Services available for clients worldwide. Uh, You can log into your account anytime, send a message to your counselor. You get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. Uh, BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. Uh, It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. So visit their website, read their testimonials that are posted daily. Uh, you can check it out at betterhelp.com slash reviews. Uh, and if you're interested, you can visit betterhelp.com slash black box down. That's better H-E-L-P. And join over the 1 million people who have taken charge of their own mental health with the help of an experienced professional. So we have a special offer for black box down listeners. You get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash black box down. Thank you to BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. The report notes it's ultimately the captain's responsibility to ensure that the de-icing is done with sufficient care. 
However, it is the technical division that must answer for de-icing and make sure that it's being performed and checked. Before the start of the winter season, each mechanic was given a checklist which specified that they should check whether there is any clear ice by feeling the wing upper surfaces with their hand. But there's no detailed instructions in defined nomenclature that describes how to check for the presence of clear ice, how it should be removed, or how to follow up check and report to the captain. So basically it said, check the wing with your hand to make sure there's no clear ice, but there's no specific instructions on how to do that mm -hmm. and the exact procedure on how to do that. Which, you know, the airline industry relies on that. It relies on exact instructions and procedures. Yeah, because you could check with your hand one spot and it, there not be ice, but there could be a foot up it, right? Right. And that's, that's exactly what happened here, Chris. Like I said, the mechanic, you know, took the ladder out up to the wing and he reached out as far as he could and he didn't feel any ice. So he thought, oh, there must be no ice, but the ice was beyond his reach. Mm. I guess he technically followed the instructions to check for ice, but the instructions were incomplete. And there was actually still ice there. The MD-81 has a wingspan of about 108 feet, and he only checked one area that was within his arm's length. So imagine how, how long your yeah. arm is. <laughs> and it's like he checked a 108-foot-long wing that's super wide with, you know, like maybe a two-and-a-half-foot reach. Yeah. But they did run the, the melting procedure twice. Right. They did de-ice it twice. But the volume of clear ice that was on there, like I said, it was so thick that that amount of de-icing was insufficient for it. Yeah. The report notes that the technician should have gotten onto the wing fully and checked, but the wing was slippery due to the precipitation. Uh, and since he didn't find any ice, he didn't check for ice after the de-icing was done. Mm. Uh, and just to be safe, you know, they went ahead, they checked the equipment that was used in the de-icing, and uh, you know, that showed that the equipment met all relevant specifications. So this ice was just missed by the de-icing crew. The risk of clear ice for this aircraft type had been known in aviation by the airline for several years. In 1987, the aircraft were equipped with warning triangles with indication tufts to help with the discovery of clear ice. And actually, when they were de-icing this plane, the person who was operating the nozzle said he saw one of the four tufts move while he was spraying, but a passenger said he did not see the tufts move when they were spraying the plane. Do you understand what's going on here? This like They've got these little tufts on the plane or on the wing. That way, if you spray them and they're moving, you know that the liquid's hitting it. But if you okay. spray it and they don't move, that means that there's ice covering it. Okay, yeah. That's a good way to check from without having to walk around on a frozen plane. Right. So this is another, you know, system that was in place. It was a warning that should have been caught, but wasn't. So wait, they didn't do that. Well, the technician says he saw one of the four tufts moving, but a passenger who's on the plane said they did not see the tufts move. Hmm. So there's no way to check that. There's no, there's no log of that. It's just people's memory and what they saw. Gotcha. The training for MD-80 pilots did not provide any special instructions for the pilot action if there was a risk of clear ice, and the report notes that if they had more knowledge and unambiguous instructions, they would have probably been more alert to the risk of clear ice formation. And I feel compelled to mention something here. At the top of the show, I mentioned that this kind of plane, the MD-80, you know, DC-9 style plane, where the engines are on the back, this is a problem for these kinds of planes. If you think about it, if the engines had been under the wings, if ice had broken off the wings and flown backwards, it wouldn't have gone into the engine. Because the engines are mounted at the tail, that's exactly where the ice went mm. into. Yeah, I didn't, yeah. So it's more of a danger for these planes. Right, so when you're flying these kinds of planes, you need to be more aware of it. You know, if, like I said, if the engines were mounted under the wings and the ice broke off on top of the wings, it would have flown back. It might have hit the horizontal stabilizer, something on the tail, but it wouldn't have been ingested into uh, an engine and caused any damage. Yeah. So um, for technical personnel, uh, they went ahead and uh, told them to do the following when checking for clear ice. And I'm going to read a little quote here. 
When there is doubt as to whether clear ice has formed on the wing upper surfaces, the wing upper surface has to be checked using suitable means of access in order to detect the possibility of clear ice. Physical hand contact with the wing upper side and tapping with the back of a screwdriver are the only reliable methods of discovering clear ice. If external conditions give reason to suspect clear ice, the upper sides of both wings must be inspected even if the wing inspected first is free of clear ice. So they're telling you, touch it with your hand or tap it with a screwdriver to check for ice. And if there's conditions that make you suspicious that there might be ice, um, then inspect it anyway, just to be safe. Yeah. And it said both of them, right? Both wings. Mm -hmm. So the mechanic who checked the plane that morning failed to follow the instructions given to him. Uh, and also it seems there were no instructions obliging the night technician to inform the morning mechanic that he found clear ice either and they didn't have the correct ladders needed to fully check the upper sides of the wings without risking an accident like i said it was slippery they didn't want to walk up there the investigation board considered it remarkable that the numerous different warning signals on the risks associated with clear ice that have reached scandinavian airlines over the years have not led to effective action being taken to ensure that aircraft did not take off with clear ice on the wings so basically they said this was an accident waiting to happen yeah they're shocked that uh, nothing had been done that no procedures have been developed over all these years this is because, like you said, this is something they probably deal with every year in this part of the mm -hmm. world. The board also finds it obvious that the self-monitoring of the airline has been deficient regarding the handling of the clear ice problem. Yeah. During the investigation, the board also concluded that the pilots did not have sufficient knowledge and training on how to deal with engine malfunctions, and they did not use their emergency checklist. Oh, they didn't. I'm going to get into it here in a second, but there were some things that they did that weren't quite right but i mean they were in the moment they didn't have a lot of time they yeah you know they probably did the right thing but they there were some things they could have done a little differently uh, and i'm gonna i'm actually gonna read through a little section here of the probable cause the accident was caused by scandinavian airlines instructions and routines being inadequate to ensure that clear ice was removed from the wings of the aircraft prior to takeoff hence the aircraft took off with clear ice on the wings in connection with liftoff the clear ice was loosened and was ingested by the engines the ice caused damage to the engine fan stages, which led to engine surges. The surges destroyed the engines. So I, I, I was watching an interview with one of these people who investigated this incident. And he said something. He didn't elaborate on it. I wish I, <laughs> I, wish I had been the one talking to him because I wanted him to elaborate on this a little more. Uh, people noticed something three seconds after takeoff. So pretty quickly, right? Yeah. It's like almost immediately. The investigator who was working on this said something, and I don't remember exactly his quote, but he talked about how at this moment when the plane takes off, the weight distribution of the plane changes. Like up until then, all of the weight of the plane is on the wheels. And once those wheels take off from the ground, all of the weight is now on the wings providing that lift. And the wings mm. flex a little bit as a result of that. And that flexing is probably what broke the ice. Gotcha. Which is yeah. why it happened so quickly. Immediately, as soon as the wings take on the weight, they flex a little bit under it which cracks the ice and shoots it back into uh, the engine. And that's something I'd never thought about up until he said that when I was doing the, the research for this episode was about how the wings take on that weight of the plane <laughs> with the lift. And it makes sense, I guess, but I just never uh, really thought about it that way. It's weird to think about the weight of the plane when it's airborne. Right. Because you're like, <laughs> it's in the air. It should be weightless. But obviously <laughs> that's not true. Um, okay. So they had some recommendations here based on this incident. Uh, the first one is, arrange that airline companies have instructions and procedures to ensure that the aircraft for which they are technically responsible do not take off with clear ice on their wings. Seems like a no-brainer. Yeah. Uh, number two, 
Seek the inclusion of the emergency malfunction checklist to initial actions in case of engine surging as by heart items to be regularly practiced in the simulator. So basically, practice this in the simulator more often. Include this whole checklist for actions in case an engine surges and fails. That way, they do it almost without thinking. Just memorize it. Just do it almost like muscle memory. Number three, seek to make it possible for the cabin crew members to reach their emergency checklist from their emergency positions. So just make it easier to make the checklists, make the physical checklist more accessible so they can grab them quickly. Okay. Number four, consider the need of a prohibition on the cockpit door being open during takeoff and landing. <laughs> so, <laughs> they, I think they didn't like the fact that that other captain came into the cockpit. <laughs> but, but did he help? He did help, but I think they just want to make sure that things don't go badly in the future. Yeah, I mean... Like, ideally, you want your pilots that are in the cockpit to be able to handle an emergency on their own without the need of outside help uh-huh. in the future without the potential distraction. You could also have that dude who is like, you know, I, I built a lot of model airplanes. Do you right, guys need right. any help? I, I think I could uh, tell you a few things about gliding a plane. <laughs> like that guy walking the cabin. Or worse, even worse than that, it might be me who goes up there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, hey, I actually am the host of a... <laughs> podcast about airplane crashes and i'd love to not do one on this so yeah uh and the last um recommendation i have here is ensure that scandinavian airlines possesses a well-functioning system of quality assurance uh so basically just having a good system to double check everything make sure that everything is done properly yeah so the flight crew were applauded for their skilled emergency landing in a fast developing and potentially fatal situation rasmussen said he was proud of his crew and relieved that everyone had survived uh, sadly, though, uh, he never was able to return to piloting commercial aircraft after this. Uh, he said he just lost trust in uh, in planes. He couldn't he couldn't oh. do it anymore. He just didn't. Wow. Uh, yeah, this was this was his uh, his final commercial flight. How old was he? He was forty four. Huh. So he was fine. He you know had no long lasting physical trauma, but he said mentally he just couldn't do it anymore after that. Which is something I think we haven't covered before, like the, the lasting psychological and mental impacts of uh, surviving something like this. Yeah. I read a study that said that uh, 90% of pilots who survive an incident, you know, uh, uh, aboard their plane are able to return flying, no problem. But 10% of them uh, are, aren't able to do it anymore. That's funny. I was about to ask that, like what percentage of pilots <laughs> uh, continue to fly? It, 90% of them can continue, but I mean... Ten percent not being able to continue is, uh, is is a pretty high number, I think. Yeah, but totally totally understandable. I've seen Top Gun. It's, <laughs> it's it, it, it can be traumatic. It can be pretty traumatic. Another side note tangent I want to I want to get on here. This was also uh, an interesting incident because since the flight crashed so close to the airport and everyone survived, the media were actually on scene pretty quickly, and the Swedish Accident Investigation Board was actually extremely frustrated. Because uh, the airline took the captain and put him in front of the media first before they got to talk oh. to him, which you know normally you don't want to do. The investigators want to be able to talk to everyone independently to get information as quickly as possible. They want to be the first ones to talk to these people while everything's still fresh. Yeah, and they don't want to bias the people they talk to based off what the captain said. Exactly. So they were a little frustrated by that, but you know, because and in, in, in the early on, like I said, they don't know if it's the captain's fault that this happened. They don't. They mm-hmm. have no idea what happened here. Uh, so they don't want the story changing at all. So um, no, nothing changed because of that. I just want to point out that the investigation bureau was uh, a little upset with the airline because of, yeah. because of that, uh, that move on their part. Uh, but that's it. That's uh, Scandinavian Airlines Flight 751 
uh, a, a very happy ending to what could have been a terrible tragedy. We, like I said, we've covered several of these uh, incidents where planes lose their engines. And, you know, sometimes everything's great and sometimes it's it's not. It's, yeah. <laughs> it really depends on a lot of factors. But this is one of the one of the ones where everything turned out uh, good. A Christmas miracle. A Christmas Even though it was miracle. like two days after Christmas. But, you know, it, it, it got delayed in the mail. Yeah. Uh, I do want to remind everyone to go ahead and follow us on social media at BlackBoxDownPod on Twitter and Instagram. And also, if you want to support this podcast, then no obligation. <laughs> we have a shirt for sale. You can head over to store.roosterteeth.com uh, to check it out. It's a Black Box Down t-shirt. Uh, when this episode comes out, it, it's going to be too late to order it for Christmas. But, uh, you know, if you have any Christmas money that you're going to get uh, here this month, uh, if you squirrel that away or if you want to want to purchase one, you're you should go check that out. I think it's a it's a really good shirt. Or if you don't want to buy a shirt, uh, just go check out our uh, Crash Simulator show on Roost Teeth because uh, it, it's it's like a special addendum to these episodes where we kind of recreate the uh, crashes in flight simulator yeah so uh, we recreate some of these incidents as best as we can in microsoft flight simulator you can go over to roosterteeth.com and check it out i think we have a link in the description of this podcast as well you can uh, you can you can check it out and see what that's all about i think that's probably why in this episode you asked about how much time they had yeah to fly <laughs> because that, I, I, now that we've done the recreations i think about like wow okay how much time do we have before we hit ground i'm like well, for this speed and this height, it, uh, yeah, I just start thinking of those things in different ways. Mm-hmm. It really does add a, a new perspective. Yeah, uh, definitely go check those out. Also, a really good Christmas gift is the gift of a good podcast. So what you should do, include in a present a card that says to check out your favorite podcast, Black Box Down. I think that'll be the best gift anyone could possibly receive. I think everyone should do that. And they should, they should send us photos of that in social media. Yeah. Tag us in that. But uh, thanks for listening, everybody, and uh, we'll see you guys again next time. 